John, welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. And my co-host today is Rui Silva, an accounting PhD student here at Macomb School of Business. Uh, Rui, thanks for uh, coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so, John, you're our first UT guest. This is our first live recording podcast here in the Salem Center. So that's going to be a new experience for us. And I just want to start by asking, do you remember when we first met? No. <laughs> Would you like to tell me about it? <laughs> uh, you don't recall that I was one of the first students ever that took a class from you at ASU back in 1997? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry about that experience. It must have been a painful one for you. <laughs> it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't too painful, but uh, maybe I'll tell a story before the end of this. Uh, so we're glad to have you here to talk about finding fraud. I mean, I think you're a world's expert on this. And Rui is going to lead us off with uh, some questions. Yeah, so I think the first question has to do with uh, your background in asset pricing and your early career that was, by any metric, very successful. And uh, right around uh, 2010 or so, you kind of changed and started uh, focusing on uh, fraud and misconduct and forensic finance. So can you tell us what forensic finance is and what led you to switch uh, and focus on that? Thanks, Rui. Yeah, Rui was one of my students and accounting students that came over and took my class last year. So it's good to have, I'm, I feel like I'm in the hot seat now. I, it's your time to, to quiz me back. So yeah, I I think um, generally I was doing asset pricing research. I, I like the nature of the academic pursuit in the sense it's an intellectual one and and you can, you're playing with these intellectual games and and you're trying to challenge the norms and things that are placed by the the leaders of finance and even an assistant professor can write papers challenging Nobel Prize or future Nobel Prize winners and that seemed like an allure but at the end of the day it seemed when I looked back on my time in asset pricing I became a little disillusioned because I felt like the research had to be honest very little practical impact and that would be okay if I was given these tasks and I had to do them but I had flexibility to work on things that I would like to work on. And once I got tenure, I was afforded time to think about these things. And so in some sense, I would say it was sort of a mini midlife crisis, but it was one that was building during my time as an assistant professor that I kept writing these papers, but I kept wondering why I'm doing this. I knew I'm doing it from a tangible sense that it would get me tenure and be better for me, but I couldn't see any positive impact on the world. So I became disillusioned with that. So is this, is this a a benefit of the tenure system because many people complain that tenure is outdated. It's been around for hundreds of years and why do we still have it? Was this something that enabled you to do something that may otherwise uh, not be an approved line of research? I mean, did tenure help you do this? Did it matter? I think that's a, it's possibly that, t that tenure helped me do this because I did, I did feel like, uh, well, I'm not going to be fired. At least the, after I passed the tenure process, I had more time to more time to think. But it wasn't an immediate change. I might have made the change regardless. But yeah, that's a possible that's a possibility. So you've written a number of very influential papers that have received a lot of attention, and most recently, uh, you published a paper just a few weeks ago, or made it available just a few weeks ago, on PPP fraud. And I'm wondering, or alleged PPP fraud or misconduct, I'm wondering if you can just tell us what that paper is about and what you found at a very high level. Sure. I mean, in some ways, that paper is not too dissimilar to some of my other papers. There's The nice thing about that paper is that um, the, the SBA program released detailed data about what was claimed on these loans. And That's the Small Business Association? Yes. And so basically what we often do in, in various papers is to see what alternative data sources we can use to cross-check and cross-validate measures. And so we basically took that approach to see what kind of potential measures of, of misconduct or potential misconduct we might come up with. And so we were able to come up with measures. For instance, there was another government program called the EIDL uh, EIDL advance program where they were giving loans and the, the incentives are often different across programs. So you have to look at places where people have a incentive to report one way in one area and an incentive in another area to, to potentially misreport. So in the EIDL program, for instance, if you, you get $1,000 for each job, up to 10 jobs. So lo and behold, a lot of people report that they have a company with you know, 10 employees or more and, and they get their $10,000. But when they went for their PPP loan, 
they said they had one or two employees. And those measures of misconduct correlate with other measures. Another measure of potential misconduct is the businesses that were either didn't, didn't exist or were registered after the end of the program. So the PPP program was set up to the tune of about $700 billion or somewhere in that neighborhood. And the idea was at the time in the pandemic when everybody's worried the economy might collapse and we need to put money uh, into the economy, save people's jobs. And so I think people probably knew there might be some abuses or the, how fast it was pushed out might uh, lead to some problems. And I'm wondering, when you looked at the data for the first time, like how confident were you that you were going to find something nefarious or some 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 sort of misconduct? Well, we weren't terribly confident at first because it also is not necessarily the case of that the, there was misconduct. We also have to be able to detect it. So it's it's harder. There's we're likely to under-identify the amount of misconduct because a lot of our measures that we came up with only applied to subsets of firms and so forth. But yeah, we did have a strong suspicion given the incentive system that there might be some potentially fraudulent loans there. And that's why we started started digging into it. But one of the things we found that's surprising is that the amount of fraud actually, I should say potential fraud, ramped up over the over the period by, and in round three, there was much, many more suspicious loans are being originated. So, so it wasn't just a matter of, hey, we had to get all this money out quickly and, and lo and behold, some stakes were made. That might've been a reasonable explanation in April, 2020, but not, not when you're sitting in March, 2021. So in the third phase of rolling out money, so you're seeing the first two phases, things seem somewhat good. And the third phase is when uh, you saw an uptick of suspicious uh, loans. So like, what were the characteristics of the loans that were suspicious or potentially problematic? Yeah, I, I, would, I would clarify that I, w- I don't think the first two stages were, were all clean. It, it was, there, there were um, certain originators that were originating loans in those first two rounds, and those loans seemed highly suspicious. But the volume coming through those originators ramped up massively in the later stages of round two and in round three. So we have some figures in the paper just showing the amount of... So how much was it? Like what was the, like what percent of the total amount was suspicious? We, we name around $70 billion of, of potentially suspicious loans. Although we think that's likely an understatement of the total amount because many of our measures only apply to subsets of firms or subsets of of individuals where we have available data. If we if we had more data, then the the numbers might inc- might increase. And there's also within that 70 billion, there's there's surely some false positives as well. So a small number, right? 70 billion, jump change, <laughs> jump change. <laughs> yeah, well, in the grand scheme of things these days, but I think it 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 matters a lot. It, it matters because I think that taxpayers just don't, it's, it creates wrong incentives. And the fact that when there's fraud and it's unprosecuted, I think the fact that it ramped up in round three, it really shows that the effect of not prosecuting it, not going after it, that it, it's just going to be a problem that gets larger and larger. So if you, if you wanted to take the view that, hey, you know, what's, a, what's $20 billion dollars? And round one, then, well, <laughs> what if you multiply that by three in round three? How do you feel about that? So what do you think should be done with your findings? I'm sure you're not the only person who's seen some of this, but what will be done, do you think? What should be done? I think that we need to take a harder stance on prosecuting criminals, and particularly white-collar crime. If you look at the stance or the drug drug crimes they're prosecuted pretty routinely but uh, white collar crimes people hire lawyers they fight it and um, you, the the chances of conviction or or the number of people that are actually convicted and it goes on the record is is often kind of low and so i think that creates a wrong incentive structure and and that one one thing that people in today's world don't d- seem to forget is that when you don't prosecute fraud and you don't prosecute misconduct, then you're also just creating the wrong incentive structure going forward. So, so when you think about policy, 
That is often my biggest policy recommendation, is to take a harder stance against misconduct and and going after it. I, I know the work's difficult because it's one thing to write an academic paper saying there's potential evidence, but it's another thing to produce hardcore evidence. But it can be done. And I think in the financial crisis, there was a lot of hard evidence. But the government chose not to put people in jail criminally and just give civil penalties. It was a mistake, in my opinion. Well, we're definitely going to circle back around to some policy issues before we get there. So you mentioned uh, academia now, and what, how has it been received, your work in the academic world? How do, what do your peers think about your line of work, your work in specific, and about forensic finance? Yeah, it's a good question. I think my peers probably fall into probably like three camps. Maybe there's an indifference camp, but uh, most people fall on the extremes. They they um, There's a subset of academics that aren't big fans of my work, I would say. They think it's maybe a little too applied, not answering bigger picture questions, or, you know, maybe focused on on uh, one particular item or issue. So it doesn't fit the mold of traditional research. I think there's, a, there's another set that really likes the fact that the work is applied and they can see the applicability of it. And so I presented it. A number of academics have come up to me and say, do journals actually... Uh, leading active do journals actually publish this i thought i found your paper extremely interesting but do journals actually publish this and 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 so i think that depends on the editor's uh, editor's taste and and whether these issues matter i would say if you don't think that a 700 billion dollar government program and whether there's potential fraud if you don't think that matters then i would like to see the other items items that you're working on that are more economically important and we could talk about those issues but yeah, so I think there's pros and cons to it. For myself, I like the nature in which it is very applied and asking a, a real-world question, and that gives me more motivation for the research rather than being something more academic that's going to go on a shelf somewhere like my previous research. What do you think industry thinks of your research? <laughs> well, not obviously the people that may be engaged in potential misconduct are not happy with the research, right? And they're often the ones that are most vocal. I think in general, if you look on the on this particular paper, it shows that a lot of banks um, were doing a, a pretty nice job of screening loans. And most of the traditional banks were actually doing a pretty good job. And we've, we've heard anecdotes from a number of people, friends of friends that say, oh, yeah, they're the group, the PPP group were circling your paper and they were giving each other high fives that we did a pretty good job at XYZ Bank. So that, that said, those people aren't writing me fan mail either. Um, I'm kidding. Instead, because they're worried they're next on some other matter. <laughs> yeah, that maybe. But it, instead, it's more the if you're accusing somebody of a potential misconduct, they're, they're going to fight it with everything they have. And they've, they make a lot of money. A lot of money these firms have. It's their reputation. It's on the line. And so for them to spend millions of dollars to try to mount a smear campaign, it's nothing to them. It's chump change. So I've learned to develop thicker skin over time and just kind of uh, not, not listen to some of the distractors. I found oftentimes they will outright lie about facts and make up stuff. And that surprised me at first. And then after <laughs> I had a former employee that that came to me and said, well, of course, what do you think they're going to do? You're, you're going after their whole line of business. Of course, they're going to go after you personally. Of course, they're going to do smear campaigns. You should know that before you start, you know? So can you give us an anecdote or share a type of thing that might happen after you write a controversial paper? Well, I think one interesting anecdote is, I guess they sent I'd try to be a little bit vague in it, but uh, they, if they know the paper is presented at an academic conference, they might want to attend that conference. And I was at one conference where three people from the company were there and their hired consultants were there and they were there to ask questions and probe and so forth. And then I found out that even the discussant of the paper had been contacted ahead of time, kind of indirectly, just like, yeah, you know, you may need to help, we may need to help you understand this data better. And that they had even fed the discussant of the paper some false But do you welcome that? I mean, if they show up at a conference and engage in the, in the pedagogy of a discussion about uh, uh, your research, I mean, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? 
You know, I think ultimately it, it turns out for good because in that, that case and another case, they were saying, well, we've got our data shows we've had th- all these people analyze this and our data shows this and our data shows that. And I said, you know, that is great. There's a whole room full of academics here and they would love to have that data. And you, you're welcome to give it out. You can put, if you're worried about the names in the data, put redacted identifiers in the data and turn it open and prove the point to the, to the audience here. You know, crickets, I've never, I've never heard, I've never released the data on any of these things. So I think that, uh, that kind of proves part of the point. So let's uh, go down the, continue down the pecking order of potential parties to react to your research, and let's hit media. The, the media often picks up your papers and writes about it. Like, what do you think about that? Is that helpful in getting the message out there? Does it, is it, you know, temporary attention that goes away? And like, what is the role of media in helping bring awareness to a lot of the misconduct you write about? So media, at first, I, I just view them as a little bit of a distraction because this is time I could be spending working on a paper or another paper, doing my own research, and I'm talking to these people, explaining them about my research. Sometimes they, their questions are good. Other times they're kind of mundane. But over time, I've, I've taken a, a more positive view in the sense that this is the method to disseminate. So if you actually want people to read your research, then it takes little time to, to talk to the reporters and and uh, I try to talk to ones that, that care enough to actually read the, read the paper and dig into details. So one, one way to think about my research is it's like a, it's an academic version of investigative journalism. Do you think a certain type of media person is more likely to talk to you or reach out to you because of that? Do you have like a clientele of uh, members of the press that like to talk about your research? Yeah, there's a number of reporters that that are calling me to ask for opinions and so forth on, on, on things. And I, I, I guess there is a, you develop relationships with the people. I think if we have a, there's some, some people that have similar interests, there are certain areas of finance and they're constantly analyzing things. So they, they may call me just to get a read on a particular area or understand a matter more deeply, or sometimes they're calling because they need a quote for their story. I'm kind of careful about that. If I don't really know anything about it, I might just not, you don't want to speak off the cuff and just make a blank, blank and statement. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not really Wall Street in, Journal. Into, into that. So. so let's let's talk about another one of your papers. And this one got quite a bit of attention. And I think the title of it was, Is Bitcoin Really Untethered? It was a paper about crypto assets. And can you just uh, tell us what that paper was, what it found, and why it got so much attention? Yeah, sure. I, I think probably the biggest reason I got attention was there was a lot of attention in Bitcoin at the time. There were some accusations out there on certain blog sites and so forth, not really in the mainstream media at the time we started, that there was this cryptocurrency called Tether that was being printed. It was potentially unbacked and was not producing the proper financials to show that it was backed. And so that got us interested in terms of, okay, this is a this is an, an area to potentially examine. It may seem small, but on the other hand, Bitcoin just kept rising and the market cap of Bitcoin kept getting more and more. So and what did you know about crypto assets at the time you thought of doing this research? Did you know anything? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the answer is no, I didn't know anything about crypto assets. But on the other hand, there was actually, there's a lot of similarities between crypto assets and all of the other research that I that I had done earlier because it was basically when crypto assets trade, it's just like trading in any other asset. So you have a, you have trades that are, that are being put out there. Now, one thing different is that the trades are on the blockchain. And so because of the public nature of the blockchain, it is quasi-anonymous. And the reason I use the word quasi-anonymous is because it is, it's officially anonymous. You don't know who these IDs are, but if you do enough work and use algorithms, you can roll these players up. And so by doing that, we were able to create what's called flows or we, the term was flows. And I used to work in the flows area back when I did my investment research. And I think flows are important determinant of determining um, supply and demand and why people are buying or selling. They push prices around the flow. The prices are not determined in a vacuum, unlike the theoretical models where people say, oh, the price of this is the price of IBM is X and we ran our models and everybody agrees it's X. No, there's certain people that agree that price should be $100. There's other people think it should be $200. And 
they trade in the marketplace, they learn from each other and the price settles. And so we just took the trading data and said, well, what if we thought of this exercise in terms of flows and trades and, and use the blockchain data in a way that finance people would use it? And there really hasn't been a lot of applications using blockchain data and rolling it up into flows and using it in this way that finance. So the blockchain has the IDs of all the traders. It's anonymized, so you don't know who they are, but the tags are immutable in the sense that if you know somebody's number, then you can look at all their activity on the chain over time. And so that's how you get the flows? That's right. Basically, you can, um, you, you can look at how they trade among their accounts when they transfer, transfer money, and you basically can roll these accounts up in terms of identities. And so you looked and, at the flows in Tether at that yes. time? Yes. So we look at the flows in Bitcoin yeah. and the flows in Tether. And one of, so the main finding of the paper is is twofold that we found that the, the tether was being printed and not right when the tether was printed but when the tether was being sent through the bitfinex exchange and then moved out to other exchanges where it was buying bitcoin that it was pushing the price of bitcoin which which makes sense actually because you have a if you have a large amount of capital and you're trying to buy another asset you're going to push up the price of that asset <laughs> And we found in the largest, if you just take the largest times in which Tether was being used to purchase Bitcoin, that that explained about half the rise in Bitcoin over the period that we examined. And so Tether's a stable coin. It's supposed to be backed one for one with a dollar. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. And the second finding of our paper was that we did find evidence that Tether was it, appeared to be at least partially unbacked at times. So they were printing, when you said they're printing new Tether, you're creating a currency, and when they create a new Tether coin, they should be creating a new dollar's worth of assets in the reserves, and you're saying that that wasn't being done, or at least at the time, it wasn't being done. That's correct. It seems like what they're, another, another hypothesis that we laid out in the paper is, imagine Tether was being created unbacked, you're creating these Tether out of thin air, you're giving people like essentially a credit, and then you're saying, "Hey, go out and what do they do with that?" That tether is then being used to purchase Bitcoin. So if you, it's like adding more money supply. And we all see what happens recently when the Fed I- increases the money supply, then lo and behold, asset prices go up. And so it's kind of a similar mechanism here that the money supply is increasing, but in this case, rather than having a, a reputable entity, some people would argue. But uh, a reputable entity like the Fed that's printing money, you have a um, kind of up at that point, a very unrecognized entity that's printing this currency. And at first it started small, but at one point they're they're starting to put out billions in the system. And and it's been growing actually since our our paper came out, unfortunately. And so Tether well, is a say, major part of the You said unfortunately, but I mean, yeah. it seems like since then that they've hired auditors and the auditing is, is, seems to be getting better. So do you think it's just a case of becoming more mature and getting cleaner and, and safer? Or do you think it's, you know, something other than that? I can't really speak for what the data says about the recent environment because Tether has taken steps to make it harder to engage in the same sort of study that we did before. But I can say that, I, I can say, yeah, there's a strong incentive for them to kind of clean up their act over time. And, and so there, there may be some of that, but I don't, To there was a recent uh, Bloomberg article today you can look at, and basically what they're saying is that there's not, there's not clear evidence of, of, where, of where the money is. So, so I do think there's still a question of exactly where, where, where the assets are. Let me ask you one last question on on this thread. And you know, one thing that I find interesting is that you're able to engage in this research because uh, of the blockchain and that it is open source and that you don't have to go to the NYC or the NASDAQ or some data provider to get data, that it's all there for anybody to see. And in fact, a lot of academics are writing papers on it. Um, I'm assuming you think that's a good thing. And then ultimately, if it is open and transparent, is that a mitigant towards speculation, fraud, misconduct going forward? Yeah, I do. I do think it's a good thing that the data is out there in the public domain and that allowed us to do this. I mean, if we wanted to analyze a paper looking at 
capital flows of of certain uh, exchanges, like between the New York Stock Exchange or something, we would have to have proprietary data from those exchanges. They have reasons for you not to want to have that data because if you find anything, then it reflects poorly on them. So their lawyers typically say no. I have used proprietary data from NASDAQ before and um, appreciate them allowing us to, to do that. But Yes. Um, so that's a nice thing about the blockchain. The data is out there, but also people are becoming more careful with the way they transact on the blockchain, such that they're trying to trade in such a way that they obfuscate their identity. So it's an, kind of an arms race in some sense. Like, yeah, if somebody's real stupid about the way they trade on the blockchain, you're going to track everything. But if they're if they're a sophisticated player, it can be substantially harder. So it's a function of how much work you want to do, really, to to try to unmask those identities. Should I assume that you don't have a MetaMask wallet and you're not trading Bitcoin? <laughs> I'm not trading Bitcoin. That is a fact. So you mentioned that you weren't necessarily an expert in uh, crypto assets to begin with. How do you guide uh, your choice of research? What topic to tackle next? Uh, how do you determine that? Yeah, thanks. I. I try to keep up with current events and what's happening in the world today and and some topics just kind of captivate me as being more interesting than others. There's usually an aspect in which if it has to be of a certain size before an academic audience might be interested in it. Like if I uncovered a half a million dollar Ponzi scheme, people might say, yeah, there's like a dime a dozen of those. So if you want to look at Ponzi schemes, you might say, well, is there an interesting way I can find systematic patterns across Ponzi schemes? And academics have, have, have done those and worked on those topics. So I think there's there's one aspect in which I, I have to, I try to run things through a filter. Would an academic audience find this interesting? And is this a kind of a systematic, is this something systematic? Is this big enough? But I, I'm looking for things that are potentially illegal, illicit, immoral, questionable in financial markets. But uh, I, I'll call it like I see it. And um, if I don't, if I'm not finding evidence, I'll stop working on something. Or in some cases, I actually wrote, wrote a paper saying, you know, people are saying that there's this illicit activity here, and I have better data than anybody else, and we're not finding evidence of it. So I, I want to let the data speak and I have a very high bar for what we're going to take on. I don't want to, particularly if you're accusing or potentially accusing somebody of, of potential wrongdoing, you want to make sure you have a lot of smoke and really you want to see that there's fire there. You want to have very, very tight evidence. It's also the way I'm, I'm a skeptical person myself, so I'm always kicking around, well, we see this result, but it could be X, it could be Y. Can we differentiate between these stories? I try to set those stories up also through a academic mindset. Like one theme I think that I anchor some of the papers to is that it's pretty interesting that throughout history there's there's uh, fraud and Ponzi schemes that happen during boom times and and then they get revealed during bust times. But if you look at the academic space, we we don't have very little evidence of that. For instance, we know that there was a lot of a lot of shenanigans that went on in IPOs as part of as part of the dot com bubble, but there was only a few papers to to analyze these these issues. So, how often does it happen that you actually end up not finding uh, any evidence of misconduct? And you mentioned that you t tend to just drop that work. Is that a function of uh, journals just being reluctant to publish uh, what academics might call the non-results? Is it? Yeah, I think there's going to be reluctance to, to publish a non-result. I mean, it, I would I would work to, to push a non-result and publish that if I thought that it was a topic of sufficient interest. So for instance, in that one case that I was mentioning, it was a, regarding insider trading and people were saying that basically investment banks were front running their clients and we had evidence to examine that, whether they in fact were trading on inside information that their clients had. Like let's say prior to a takeover, if I know I have a client and they're, they're about to take over another firm, am I going to chip my trading desk to trade in front of them? At least we found no evidence of it. And so I will also preface it in terms of some of the issues we have to stop working on are because of lack of detailed data. So that is the nice aspect of the blockchain. There's lots of data out there. So you were talking about 
policy earlier and policy implications. And I'm just wondering, has your work shaped your views on financial regulation, both in its necessity and potential efficacy? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it has changed over, over time. I think... Um, in general, I'm kind of a free markets uh, free markets person, but at the time, at the same time, there's a seems to be a very strong role for investor protection, and some some people say, well, you know, it's buyer beware. People should have known, but that's fine to have that attitude when there's two people with have very similar information, and they're on the um, and that information is properly disclosed. But when one side has all the information and is very sophisticated and has a massive scheme and the other side has little old ladies out there, we would all say, well, maybe that doesn't make sense to let little old ladies get robbed by some fraudulent scheme. Now, one can argue that's those are two extremes and one can argue, well, pension funds, man, they're sophisticated. And well, some pension funds may be sophisticated, but the ones I have met haven't been that sophisticated. And they're oftentimes, they're taking the, the word and understanding facts and, and, and information that's coming from investment banks. So that leads to an incentive where the investment banks can improperly disclose or even not disclose that information. And so this, it's a lot of these informational asymmetries create an incentive for fraud. So you'd said, I'd asked you before about what should be done about the alleged PPP fraud, Paycheck Protection Program fraud. What do you think generally policymakers should do with your research, and what do you think they do? Do you know? I don't know uh, what policymakers do. It always seems like a sauce made in the back room somewhere. I think one policy angle that I I want to come back to is just that I think policymakers oftentimes think we're going to make the best best policy and it's going to prevent this from happening in the future. So we're going to, we're with a financial hap, if the financial crisis happened because of X, we're going to create new regulation that's going to stop that. Well, first of all, I think that um, we see. Let's look back at the financial crisis. We saw credit rating agencies at the center of the financial crisis. And yet, incentives in the credit rating agency is very similar to the incentives they were beforehand. So, so one of the biggest policy implication that I want to just take away that I think people have forgotten is strong rule of law and strong enforcement, because it doesn't just have backward-looking implications. It's not some old-fashioned principle. There's a reason why towns in the old Wild West, there's a reason why they hired sheriffs. And not just it created the right incentive system going forward as well. And so if you, if you don't take a hard stance and don't go after criminals, then it's creating, it's creating the wrong incentive system going forward. Do you ever collaborate with law enforcement agencies or the government on issues that you write about, they read about it, you know, do they call you and, you know, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I'm writing the research to make a practical impact. I'm not. I'm not hiding that. So I do. I do want to. I want justice to be served, and so to the extent that there's relevant law enforcement that wants to, wants to go after certain items that I write about, I I would like to help them to to do that. And do you I, ever help them? It could be a yes or no. You don't have yes, to give away I, your secrets. I do. I do. I do, um, I do help. Um, I have a f- small financial consulting firm, Integra FEC, and we work with government agencies and investigate things. And some of those things are related to to my academic research. A lot of things aren't. Yeah, government. Can you just describe that for us? What is the synergies between your consulting and your research? Like, how does that interplay? Yeah, I think in some ways, the um, my academic research, I'm investigating topics. I'm putting that out in the public realm. The work that we do at Integra has a similar mission with fraud, but it's more applied. We, we want to expose fraud and aid the defrauded. And so we will work with a lot of times with government agencies to investigate complex fraud to understand the facts. I think oftentimes there's a lot of 
data and a lot of complicated issues that can make it difficult for law enforcement to go after. And, and so to some extent, to the, the way those, if those things can get demystified and understand those things, they become, the facts become clearer and it, it becomes potentially more prosecutable. Uh, you, you've mentioned sometimes the lack of enforcement or uh, perhaps uh, the enforcement agencies not being as harsh as they could be. Has there been uh, any of your papers that you've been disappointed with the reaction to that you think things may, uh, may not have been corrected when you, sh you shed light on some important issue? I'm thinking perhaps of uh, the VIX uh, manipulation paper that you have and that uh, doesn't seem to have suffered many significant changes in the settlement process. Is that something that worries you? Yes, thanks for <laughs> thanks for bringing up that difficult question. Um, yeah, VIX is VIX is obviously something that I I stand behind every aspect of that paper. In fact, we've done follow up work uh, with more detailed data after that, and I've become even more convinced that I can see the actual trades that are that are being used to manipulate. We've seen those trades in the data and exactly how that process is carried out. And so um, we've even thought about writing a follow-up paper just to, just to illuminate that. If anyone, unfortunately, no one's disproven or tried to take a shot at our first paper, that would allow us to write the follow-up paper. Um, but, uh, but from an so academic So you need a criticism or somebody well, to say you're wrong? Criticism. I'm, inviting, I'm inviting strong criticism in our VIX paper, so anybody out there wants to do that. No, but um, so that has been a little frustrating at times. It, honestly, it is because I would... I'm not writing the uh, research in a vacuum. I want to see practical impact, and I would like to see these markets change. They have changed their, um, they have changed some aspects of their of their uh, settlement process. They've tinkered on the edges. But again, part of the justice system that I that I think is important is to admit if something happened, not just like say, oh yeah, we changed the process, we're moving forward. But no, this actually was happening because it may if if there was a scheme going on for years and an exchange covered it up, then that speaks to the whole culture of the organization and the way that... Has that, that ever happened before? Uh, yeah, I think it may be happening. <laughs> so I, I, don't, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to get too far out there. But uh, yes, I think these exchanges have a reputation that, look, if something happened here, we want to cover it up. And by covering it up, they're essentially protecting the manipulators or the, the, uh, the perp people that have, um, have engaged in some sort of wrongdoing because they're not allowing it or they're not prosecuting it, going after it because it, they, it has a side, side effect or on their reputation. So you said that nobody has challenged you on this particular analysis. And I'm wondering... Has anybody ever challenged you on your analysis where you've decided that maybe your original analysis wasn't right or you got it wrong? Or have you ever retracted any of your research or questioned the efficacy of what you've done? I've never come back to any of our papers, and, and uh, I, I don't think there's been any papers that have been rigorously challenged and proven, proven wrong in any sense. And uh, I can't think of anything that we've been, we've been proven wrong on any, any paper. So I want to touch on two more points uh, that I think are fairly relevant. And one is credit rating agencies, and you mentioned it before. And I think one of your very first papers that came out of your rebirth and focusing on forensic finance was on, I think it was, did subjectivity play a role in the CDO credit ratings? Do you remember that paper? Was that, in fact, your first fraud paper? Where was in the series of your research in terms of focusing on this? What did you find, and how relevant do you think it was? Yeah, that wasn't... I think I, I'd written some papers about insider trading that hit on the forensic theme, more traditional. And I had decided at that time that I was going to start working on, on topics that in this forensic nature. And I decided actually that would be my um, filter for new research, that I was only going to work on things that that would kind of fit into this narrow filter. And I've stuck with that for a while, and pretty much all my research has fallen in that. But this that paper was one of my first to venture into the financial crisis. And at the time, the financial crisis was kind of unfolding. I have a co-author that was an expert in 
structured finance and CDOs and knows a lot about rating agency methodology. There were some accusations out there, like did what did the rating agencies know? What did they not know? Did they just make honest mistakes? What, what was the reason for these ratings failing so miserably in such a short period of time? So people were writing about it, and I thought, yeah, there's no, there's no real an examination of these things. So we just started, started digging in and saying, what data can we get and what can we learn? And so what did you get and what did you learn? Well, we got a lot of data, and what we learned was this wasn't a total understanding of the whole process, but we did learn that the rating agencies had models, and then they made adjustments to those models. Now, uh, one, one thing I learned over time um, and from the rating agencies, they, yes, they, have a, they had a model to justify their adjustments, but that model was a proprietary model, something secret model that they um, never released model. to. What's that? A quantitative model. A, a quantitative model, yes. And it, it, it could have had qualitative factors as well. The reason for the adjustments were never disclosed. And um, the rating agencies made adjustments. Those adjustments were generally positive, And those adjustments increased in the years running up to the financial crisis. And lo and behold, those adjustments were related to bad performance. So the more adjustments they made, guess what? The worse the securities did. And in a subsequent paper, we found also in the cross-section that those adjustments were related to the incentive structure of the industry in the sense that Moody's made more positive adjustments when S&P gave a higher rating and vice versa. So the rating agencies were competing in this, in this space, and they would give higher ratings to, to gain business. And so, well, that's what the data said, is that they did uh, give out higher and higher ratings and and uh, beyond their models and in a way that was very systematic where they were trying to compete for higher ratings. And that's probably probably widely acknowledged now uh, that that happened during that period. But, you know, since the financial crisis, I assume that's all been cleaned up and rate agencies um, don't have these subjectivity issues anymore. Is that a fair statement? Well, I've got a recent paper about CLOs and... Um, Collateralized loan, loan obligations. Yes. So those are securitizations of levered loans that get packaged up and sold. That's correct. Yes, correct. And basically, well, the surprising thing is that after the financial crisis, there was a there was um, a lot of re- legislation passed. There was Dodd Frank. There was a lot of information about the credit rating agencies. I'm sure you mo- know much more than than I do about all that, Scott, and and what was going on there, but. The, the surprising thing is the end result out of the back end of all this, as far as, as far as I can tell in talking to other people in the industry, is that not much has changed in terms of the incentive structure and the potential conflicts that are out there. So maybe there's more caution. Maybe there's a little more caution, a little more covering. And what is the incentive problem? Why is it persistent? Like, what is the incentive that creates these issues? Well, I think the incentive, the incentive problem is that the, the investment banks are paying for ratings and the banks are generally going to make more money if they have a higher rated security. If you can take, imagine you can take a bunch of uh, B rated paper and then turn it into AAA rated stuff, you're gonna be able to sell it at a great profit. And the more, if you're only able to get a little bit of double AAA paper out of this, you're not gonna make much money. But if you can get, 60%, 50% of the deal to be triple A uh, and then magically turn in your lower rated stuff into um, still lower rated stuff. You're able to somehow perform this alchemy. So this and, would be as if, if the educational model were that Rui, when he took your class, paid you directly for that class, then you might have different incentives for what sort of grade you gave him based on that direct payment? Is that, is that an analog that would be relevant <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah, it's, it's an incentive. And I would, I would be told, like, well, don't give Rui a high grade because he pays, he's paying you a lot of money. But I think that really related to that, that is a problem with teacher evaluations because they're basically incentivizing, um, incentivizing you to, to be easy to the students. So and we have a problem here in academia, too, just yeah, like we have the rate agencies. We have a problem. I think conflicts of interest are everywhere. So my point is not to, you can completely eliminate them, but you need to, the more transparency around it, 
can potentially mitigate these factors. You wrote a paper ten, on the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis that talked about the reflection of the financial crisis and where we are. Like, what, what was your conclusion of that 10 years later? Well, if you had to sum it up in a couple sentences, what, what would it be? The conclusion was that I think fraud and financial, I use that word loosely, financial shenanigans played a larger, much larger role in the financial crisis than a lot of people give it credit to. And I say that not based on my opinion or some Michael Lewis book, but based on rigorous academic research from a lot of academics, including my own research, but a lot of other academics as well. We found massive fraud by originators, by underwriters, by appraisers, by rating agencies that went well beyond their models. And I show in the paper how all these incentives actually caused house prices to go up. I think we think we understand something because we read a Michael Lewis book, and those are educational, but I think rigorous academic research is needed to fully understand those um, various facts. And so what the paper does is it just puts puts those facts together and says, look, there is actually a large body of literature. And so what what can we learn from this body of research? And the, and the conclusion is those incentives are still present today in the financial markets? You know, the markets. paper's mainly about the, the, the academic research leading up to the financial crisis, but I do, um, un, I do unfortunately see largely the same incentive structures in place at most of those players. Can you touch on the evolution of uh, forensic finance in uh, in academic research? Do you think you have been successful at attracting maybe younger researchers towards this area of academic research? How do you see the field now? Is it perhaps even overcrowded or still underexplored? I think it's underexplored. I don't know if I've been successful at, at attracting other researchers. I would give a lot of credit to Christy Schultz, one of the first forensic finance papers, and just they found that these uh, traders were avoiding avoiding odd eights trades in a way to keep prices high. Uh, it led to a lot of change in the industry. So I think it was one of a, a great example of a forensic finance paper that had a had a very positive in, impact in terms of changing something practical. So Christian Schultz wrote that paper back in the early 1990s, and that was about the NASDAQ markets. And instead of quoting prices back before we had decimalization, they were, they were quoting in quarter uh, dollars instead of instead of eighths when they should have been doing eighths, and that was collusion. Was that is that do I remember correctly? That's right. It was um, Christine Schultz, nineteen ninety four, and I was actually a PhD student at Ohio State at the time when Paul Schultz was on faculty there. So it was exciting to see him, um, and he released that paper, and they had a follow up paper. That, that showed it even more um, concretely. And, and ultimately, NASDAQ settled and paid a large, uh, large fine for those activities and changed the way they traded. So that was a case of academic research uh, having a positive effect on the efficiency and the well-functioning of markets. Are there any areas right now that you want to preview that you're going to write about in the future? Any parts of the markets that you think are ripe for investigation? I think there's a lot of there's there's always going to be um, financial shenanigans. So, I think the crypto space is is still ripe with a lot of um, questionable activities. And so that would be one area to to for potential researchers to to dig into. Right now, I actually am not uh, not really focused on a new project right now. I'm trying to just wrap up existing projects. I find I I have to kind of force myself to finish old projects before they st get the reward to start a new, new project. But it's always more fun to start than to stop or yeah, to finish. Unfortunately. Yeah. When you write your papers, do you, is your most recent paper your favorite? And do you think about, uh, do you forget about old papers and let them go? Yeah, I think when I'm writing a paper, I, it is, I do really get into every facet of it. So I, I, it is generally my, my favorite paper at the time is the paper I'm writing. Sometimes I look back on my papers and yeah, there's some that I think were more interesting than others. I, I think my biggest regret with some of the papers is that they haven't had the impact. Like you mentioned, the 
the VIX paper. It's frustrating sometimes <laughs> to write papers to identify a problem and then to turn back and look at the problem five years later and say, well, not much has, not much has changed. Um, but, you know, I have to just kind of rest and look, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not the one in control and uh, I'm, I'm doing my part and I'm just going to let the rest rest in God's hands. All right. Well, thanks for coming today. We really appreciate you uh, spending time with us. Preparing for our episode today brought back memories of when I first met John. He was a new mint professor at ASU. I was a practicing engineer pursuing an evening MBA. The year was 1997. The class was investments, and it was his first time teaching. As he alluded to on the program, it may not have been his best performance. I soon after decided to enter the PhD program and we struck up a friendship that continues to this day. I threatened to tell a John Griffin story and he is the source of some of my best stories because he is unorthodox in his pursuits and that can give pause to observers, often in humorous ways. For example, I once watched him enter a bench press competition with a student who wanted an extension to his assignment and John said, only if you can bench press more than me. I offered to be the referee, the student accepted the challenge, and we walked over to the gymnasium to see who would win. It was John, by a margin of five pounds. The student then asked if he was close enough, and John said, nope, the assignment was still due at midnight, as planned. For the record, my money was on the student and I underestimated John, which I believe is a common theme to many of his accomplishments. I'm not sure how many academics on this planet have done more using forensic finance methods to uncover potential fraud and misconduct in financial markets. I probably abused our friendship just a bit by getting him to come on the show and answer some of the questions we prepared. He prefers to let his research, which includes many talented co-authors, speak for itself and doesn't like to talk about the process, including some of the challenges he faces when writing about financial market participants whose reputations can be threatened and have strong incentives to refute the findings. To date, I'm not aware of any research he's produced or any of his co-authors have produced that has proved to be wrong. But some of his research and his estimation, as he described on the show, hasn't had the effect that he had hoped. My co-host, for example, asked about the VIX manipulation, which John alluded to still being a problem today, years after he first published his results. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate it and don't be shy about telling others about it. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the Combs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the UT Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Middies College of Communication. Mm-hmm.